It's good to see all of you. Uh, today, we're going to read from the letter, first letter of John, chapter 3. First letter of John, chapter 3. Verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, as Priya said, over the last year, we have been reading through the Bible together as a congregation, and this week marks the very last week of our trek together. And so, we read the final chapters of Revelation this week, and we will get to those, but I'm going to use this verse in 1 John to frame the whole thing. So, What's the point of all that we've been doing together? Like we, we've been, I mean, a whole year of reading this book. Why have we been doing this? Well, there's lots of reasons. But the one that makes my heart sing this morning, uh, I, I was reminded of a uh, quotation from G.K. Chesterton this week. And this is a paraphrase, um, but uh, it, it still gets the point across. He said that fairy tales are not written in order to convince children that dragons exist. Fairy tales are written to convince children that dragons can be defeated. <laughs> I'm out. That's out. Oh my goodness. Fairy tale. Okay, so is he calling the Bible a fairy tale? Well, yeah, but in the, in the most serious way possible. It's a true fairy tale. and. This book exists to remind us that dragons can be defeated and that we shall live happily ever after. So today, I'm going to strain all the powers of language that I possess and draw on some others too to help us behold Christ in all of his glory, not by faith, but by sight. Today, we see him only through the lens of faith, but one day we shall see him with our eyes, not by faith, but by sight. And so, in this one little verse, uh, we are going to see all of that. And uh, there's this old saying that uh, in every, in, 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 in terms of the Bible, um, there's a chapter in every word and there's a sermon, excuse me, there's a, a chapter in every word and a sermon in every letter. And so we're just going to use the end of that verse in order to uh, frame this. The end of that verse in 1 John 3 was, we shall see him as he is. Okay? So we're going to take that in under four headings. Number one, we shall see him as he is. Number two, we shall see him as he is. Number three, we shall see him as he is. And then number four, we shall see him as he is. So get ready. Number one, we shall see him as he is. Now, the first time in history that we shall see Christ as he is in glory happens at what we would call the second coming of Christ, the glorious appearing. And we see just a taste of that in Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 29. 
This is Jesus speaking. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So we know that that day, because of Christ's other teachings, we know that day will come as a thief in the night. We will be going about our lives, our, everything that we do, marrying and giving in marriage, working. It, he will come at the moment we least expect it. In the blink of an eye, the everlasting light shall come streaming in, and he will come in the clouds with glory. Now, whose glory is he coming with? Well, there are actually two answers to that. The first answer is uh, a couple chapters back in Matthew 16, verse 27. Whose glory is Christ coming in? 1627. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So he's coming in the glory of his Father. Remember what he said in John chapter 6, if you have seen me, not John chapter 6, that's what we read earlier, the gospel of John, it is written somewhere, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And yet even even though that's true, do you remember, his disciples, some of them doubted that to see Christ was to see the Father. But in that day, When he comes in his glory, in his Father's glory, there will be no doubt upon whom we look. To see Christ will be to see the perfect union between the Father of the church and the mediator of the church. There will be no blending. It will not be difficult for us to see. When we see Jesus, we will see the Father's glory. And at the sight of Christ in, in, in his Father's glory, we shall see plainly the love of the Father. We shall see the wisdom of the Father, the grace of the Father, the pleasure of the Father radiating from the glorious presence of the exalted Christ. So he comes in his Father's glory. But secondly, he also comes in his own glory. Back to Matthew chapter 25. Verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven uh, to the other. No, (laughs) that's not the right verse. Uh, I wrote it down wrong. Um, It's good. It's good. Anyway, he comes in his own glory. Trust me, it's there. Um, And if not, I'll, I'll find it for you afterwards. But when he comes, not only in his Father's glory, but in his own glory, we, all, we shall see him as the priest that he is. Do you remember the Old Testament priests? They would go into the most holy place with the blood of sacrifice on their hands. And then once that was done, once that atonement was accomplished, they would change into glorious robes and they would come out to the congregation and bless them and remind them, the Lord your God has forgiven you. And so shall it be that Christ has already offered himself 
as the perfect atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. Forgiveness abounds from that cup. And on that day, he will have decked himself in the robes of unspeakable splendor and glory. So we shall see him as he is. But the next place we see him as he is, is in the judgment seat. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul reminds us that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And remember, in that day, we shall see him as he is, not as he was. Here on earth, he was judged. Mockery was hurled upon him. His beard was plucked out. People punched him in the face and demanded a prophecy. He stood trial in a miscarriage of justice. And at every point where he could have defended himself, he he stayed silent as a lamb before the slaughter. But that is not how we will see him at the end of the ages. Not as one who is judged, but as one who comes to judge. And for the beloved of God, there is no reason to fear that judgment. We know that we come guilty. We we must confess that to even have any sense of reality. We know we come guilty, but there is a favorable judgment for those who have confessed their faith in him and his merit for their salvation and all shall be well. He said, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We shall see him as he is, as a judge upon a throne with authority to right every wrong, to reverse every evil. And after his judgments are rendered in wisdom, the congregation shall behold him and cry out, he has done all things well. We shall see him as he is. We shall also see him not tempted as he was on earth, but triumphant. He will put all of his enemies under his feet. Satan will be cast into the eternal fire. We will behold Christ in his conquering. And people will gather around him and sing the song of Revelation 19. Hallelujah. For the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. We shall see him as he is. Not under the frowning countenance of the Father as he was on the day of his crucifixion. The day when the weight of the father's displeasure was so powerful that it, cr- that it caused Jesus Christ to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, he was becoming sin itself. He was becoming the curse of sin and the father's displeasure. On, on our sin that he took up, was heavy upon him and he felt forsaken. But he will not, we will not see him in that day like that. In that day, we will see Christ lit 
by the eternal smile of the Father. And his name shall no longer be forsaken. His name shall be, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So we shall see him as he is. But second, we shall see him as he is. There will be no doubt in that day whom we look upon. He shall bear the marks that we know to be his, the marks of his passion in his hands and in his feet and in his side. Those still remain in his resurrected body. Remember what it said in Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. The congregation of the righteous surrounds the risen Christ and they sing a song. They say, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And, the, and he went and took out the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. The lamb stands among the congregation as one who was slain. We shall know him because his wounds have often filled our meditations here in this life. But we shall not only know him by his wounds, we shall also know him by his face. Revelation 22 verse 4 says, And they, the congregation, shall see his face. Now, we can take face both literally and symbolically, literally, because Jesus Christ has a resurrected body, and as such, he has a face, and we will recognize that face, but it's interesting to me, I don't, it, it appears that it will not be immediately recognizable. I mean, there's no pictures in the New Testament. We, we have no idea what he actually looked like, the shape of his nose, the curvature of his lips. We don't know what he looked like. So how will we recognize his face? Well, if you remember, even his disciples did not recognize his face in the resurrection. He was walking down the road to Damascus with two of his disciples. And for hours they walked and he explained to them who he was, who the Christ was and how the Christ must suffer. He opened them the, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures from Moses on through the prophets and showed them how the Christ must suffer. And they didn't recognize him. And then they get to the end of the road and they say, hey, you should come in and eat with us. And still they didn't recognize him. But then he sat down at the table and he broke bread and he gave it to them. 
And then he was gone. And it was at that moment they recognized him. Why? Why in that moment did they recognize him? It's because in the breaking of the bread, he moved toward them in mercy and kindness. He broke bread for the 5,000 on the hillside. He broke bread for the 4,000 on the hillside. He broke bread for his disciples in the upper room. People who love Jesus know what it means when Christ breaks bread for them. It means I love you and I want to be with you. It is a movement of kindness and gracious action. And in that moment, they recognized his face. And I think it'll be the same for us. Perhaps it's when he says, come, all you who are blessed, enter into the joy of your master. Perhaps in that moment it'll be like, oh, it's him. Perhaps it'll be around the banqueting table in Revelation chapter 19. He stands and he breaks the bread and he gives it to his people and we will all look at one another in astonished wonder. It's him. We shall recognize his face, literally. But also, we shall know him by his face symbolically. Now, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, uh, but not as much, uh, face is a symbol for proximity, closeness. Uh, if you remember low those many months ago when we read through Jeremiah, you probably wouldn't remember this verse, but there's a, there's a um, just as an example, there's a part where Jeremiah talks about uh, a group of men who were in the council of the king. But the literal translation is, they were men who saw the face of the king. It meant that they were in his council. They were in his friendship. They were seers of the king's face. Therefore, they were near to him. And so none can know the depth of joy that is in store for the saints of God when Jesus speaks to us face to face, not mediated by ink and paper, not mediated by a, a faint whisper inside, but to hear his voice in its timber and its tone magnificent. Thomas Boston says it far more magnificently than I ever could. He says, the saints there, the saints shall eternally without interruption feast their eyes upon him and be ever viewing his glorious perfections. And as their bodily eyes shall be strengthened and fitted to behold the glorious majesty of the man of Christ as eagles gaze on the sun without being blinded thereby, so their minds shall have such an elevation as will fit them to see God in his glory. Their capacities shall be enlarged according to the measure in which he shall be pleased to communicate himself unto them for their complete happiness. We shall see him as he is. Third, 
we shall see him as he is. Notice the surety of that promise. We shall see him as he is. That is the very definition of biblical hope. Now, biblical hope, as we've said here many times before, biblical hope is not the same as worldly hope, earthly hope. When we talk about hope, we mean it more like in a contingent way, like, you know, I hope I graduate, or I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. The, the better word for that would be wish, because there's all sorts of contingencies, all sorts of things that are outside of our hands and our control. I wish I could graduate. I, I wish that it doesn't rain tomorrow, but the word hope in the Bible does not deal in ifs and maybes. It is sure. If Christ promises something, it shall be done. For example, in Paul's letter to Titus, we see it right in the very first uh, chapter. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect with their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ has been, Paul says, in the counsels of God from before the foundation of the world. And all throughout the Old Testament, there was this longing. The, the people of God were taught to long for this glorious appearing of the Messiah, which we talked about a year ago, is why many of them were confused when Christ showed up and said, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, wait a minute, we thought the Christ was supposed to come in glory, and here you are, just like one of us, in weakness. They didn't expect the Messiah to come in the middle of history, but despite that confusion, they were right to hope for that glorious appearing. They had been taught that. It had been promised to them by God. And we, as the church, have inherited that promise from them. And the only way that that promise will disappoint us is, as Paul says in Titus, if God is a liar. If he has promised something and decided not to fulfill it. But as Paul says in Romans, though every man be found a liar, still God will be found true. He keeps the promises that he makes. Christ has promised his return, and so it is a worthy object upon which we can set our hope. Not our wishes, but our hope. He promised it to us. In Revelation 22:20, 20, he said at the very last verse, behold, I am coming soon. So we shall see him as he is. But then fourth, we shall see him as he is. We are not left out of the promise of his glory. He comes to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. And when he does, we, 
we who least deserve it, we shall never cease to behold the beatific vision of our Lord. Now, in this age, where we are today, in this age, if we behold Christ, we behold him dimly, as in a mirror. Every once in a while, we catch the fleeting glance of him. And even those fleeting glances are more than we can bear. But when we are resurrected, when we have been remade into perfect glory, we will be free of all of the clogs of the flesh that prohibit us from bearing the weight of that glory. Having passed through the furnace of death, we will be purified from all of that instability and all that frailty, and we will be able to stand up in joy under that weight. There will be no hindrance in that day to bearing that glory. But there will also be no hindrance of temptation as, as which besets us today in this age. The great enemy of our souls, his whole purpose is to obscure our sight of Christ and his glory. But in that day, as we already read, Jesus Christ will have defeated him eternally. Never will he harass the people of God again. And our sight of Christ will never be interrupted. John Owen, let me, let me borrow from him. He says, wherefore, the vision which we shall have in heaven of the glory of Christ is serene, always the same, always new and indeficient, wherein nothing can disturb the mind in the most perfect operations of a blessed life. And when all the faculties of the soul can, without any internal weakness or external hindrances, exercise their most perfect operations on the most perfect object, Therein lies all the blessedness of which our soul, our nature, is capable of. There will be no place which we can wander in this new creation with our Lord. There will be no place that we can wander where we will lose that direct enjoyment of his presence. Do you remember in Revelation 21, if you read it this week, you remember when it talks about the new creation, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride adorned? It's this great crescendo of a moment. We talked about this a year ago. It's this great crescendo of a moment. It's full of emotion. And then there's this weird thing that happens. An angel comes out with a ruler and starts measuring things. Wrong time, man. Like we're all, we're all shouting hallelujah. The, the new creation is born and he says, I wanna measure some stuff. <laughs> but it's pretty astonishing. If you've forgotten what I said a year ago, let me remind you. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 16, as a result of the measurement, this is what we find. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length 
and width and height are equal. He interrupts this magnificently glorious moment to show us that the new Jerusalem is in the shape of a cube. Height, width, and depth are equal. What is that all about? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you will remember that when God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle, like the the mobile temple while they were in the wilderness, he said, okay, there's lots of things you need to do, but pay attention to this. The most holy place where I dwell, where my presence will dwell among my people, there are some very specific things you need to do. And the most important one is that you need to build it 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. It's a cube. Then when Solomon built the temple, God said, when you're building this, the most holy place, the place where my presence will dwell on the earth must be 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. It is a cube. And so what this angel who interrupts everything and starts measuring, what he's trying to tell us is that the new Jerusalem, the entirety of the new creation is in the shape of a cube. Now, maybe it'll literally be this, I don't know, but the point is symbolically, that's where all the power is. Because what he's saying is, although there was a little cube in Jerusalem where my presence dwelt on earth, now in the new creation, my presence shall dwell everywhere. The new creation will be radiating with the presence of God. And so never shall we lay our heads down to sleep and be grieved that we had passed a whole day without the remembrance and praise of God. Everywhere we shall see him. Everywhere, everything we see will bring to our minds his glorious deeds. And we shall be the most blessed of people. But not only will his presence be everywhere, in that day there will be a change in our worship as well. In Revelation 21, verse 22, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Today, even in this very moment, today, we behold Christ's glory through the ordinances of worship. We, we see him as, as if through a fogged window as we sing together as a congregation. We get glimpses of him when we come and we partake of the bread and the cup. We, we almost feel like we see him when the gospel is preached in power. But these are all fleeting glances. But in that day, in the day of new creation, those ordinances will pass away. Because the temple is the lamb. <laughs> Do you hear it? The temple is the lamb. So in that way, we shall not only experience joy, but we shall enter into it. 
We shall not only experience joy, we shall enter into it. Very big difference between those two things. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 25, when he's separating the goats from the sheep and there's a judgment, he says, you who on my right, enter into the joy of your master. Enter the joy of your master. There's a very big difference between experiencing something and entering it. We know the experience of joy because by God's grace and his kindness, we have, we have brushed up against it a handful of times in our lives. It happens now and then. But every joy that we experience in this age also has a sorrow attached to it because the joy is this magnificent experience, but then it passes away. We want to hold on to it, but we can't. We wish we could, but we can't. But it will not always be so. Listen to C.S. Lewis from The Weight of Glory. He says, we, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else, which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, <laughs> but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And when we enter, when we come to mingle with that joy, what will it be like? Well, let me lean on Thomas Boston one more time. He says, joy sometimes enters into us now with much ado to get access while we are compassed with sorrows. But then joy shall not only enter into us, but we shall enter into it and swim forever in an ocean of joy where we will see nothing but joy. Whithersoever we turn our eyes, the presence and enjoyment of God and the Lamb will satisfy us with pleasures forevermore and the glory of our souls and bodies arising from thence will afford us everlasting delight. The spirit of heaviness, how, how, how closely soever it cleaves to any of the saints now, shall drop off then their weeping shall be turned into songs of joy and bottles of tears shall issue in rivers of pleasures happy are they who now sow in tears which shall spring up in joy in heaven and bow their heads there with a weight of glory upon them and with that I have I have stretched my powers of language as far as they can go to describe the glory and joy that we shall have when we see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, I know that your labor here is toilsome and it vexes you. And there are sorrows abounding. 
but your labor is not in vain. Keep fighting the good fight. And the promise is sure. Behold, I am coming soon. And we shall see him as he is. And in that day, the dragon shall be slain. And we shall live forever in our joy. Praise God. Now is the time for the ordinances. Yes, we see Christ dimly through the bread and the cup. But we see him. Even though we taste joy now as at a thousand removes, one day we shall drink from the fountainhead of joy. And so as you come, remember that. This is a taste of the future. Let us pray. Father in heaven, if we are to be people of hope, we must receive your grace. Fill us with your spirit so that as we labor here under pain and sorrows and disappointments, you would grant us the grace to see over that horizon and keep walking. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.